Well, good morning, New City. Glad to be with you. I had a dream last night that uh, it was a Sunday morning that I wasn't scheduled to be here or to preach, and then somebody called me at 9.22 a.m. and said the person who was supposed to preach didn't show up, and I had to come and preach, and I had no idea what I was going to say. Luckily, that didn't happen today. I know what I'm going to say, so I'm feeling great. Um, I also just want to say this. Listen, if you're newer with us, a community group start back this week. If you're not in a group, on the back of that Connect card, you can check community groups, or you can text NCC groups to 97,000. It's a great way to connect more with New City Church, and really excited about that. As I began, I want to share a story of a man and her husband, or a woman and her husband, who had been married for 60 years and had remained faithful, a loving marriage this entire time. They had a great marriage together. However, the woman did have one secret, which was a shoebox in her closet. The shoebox itself was not a secret. Her husband knew it was there, but she told him that he was never to open the box or ask about what was inside of it. But unfortunately, one day she fell ill, and the doctor said she probably was not going to make it. And so the husband took the box, brought it to her bedside, and asked if he may open it. With her permission, uh, she said that he could. And so he pulled the top off, opened up the box, and pulled out $95,000 and two crochet dolls. He asked what all this was. She responded by saying, well, honey, uh, my grandmother once told me the secret to a successful marriage was to never get angry at your husband. Instead, when you're angry, you should crochet a little doll, at which point the husband becomes teary-eyed and quite moved and actually quite excited that his wife was never that angry with him. Like, we must have had a really good marriage. I must have done a really great job. And so he said, wonderful, that dear, that is so wonderful. I'm so excited. But, but what about this $95,000? To which she replied by saying, well, honey, that's the money I made from selling the dolls. <laughs> And so that worked for them. She crocheted dolls. Today, as we continue our time in Genesis, here's the question we're going to look at. What do you have to do for God to accept you? Right? In that marriage, you know, she had a way of dealing with her husband's frustration so that they could have a good marriage together. But for you and for me, what should you and I do in order for God to accept us? Now, I just want to say this. I know if you're like, well, Jesus, trust Jesus, because yes, Jesus is always the answer at church. Um, but, I just, but I want to be real for a second, right? Like, like if you think in your life, the things that you've done, the things that you have thought, knowing the mistakes that you've made, the, 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 the wrongdoing, the times that you've lied or cheated or stole or, or done things that you would even say, like, I should not have done that. Like, how is it possible, knowing all that I have done, for me to be on right terms with God? Like, not for just for him to, like, forgive me, but for him to actually love me. What would it look like or what does it take for me to be accepted by God? That's the question we're going to look at this morning as we continue our time in Genesis. And so if you have a Bible, would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 32? If you don't have a Bible, there's a black one around you. You can turn to page 27 there. And if you don't own a Bible, you can take that home. It's our gift to you. We have been in the last couple of weeks looking at the life of Jacob. So we've seen the Genesis story. Uh, there's been a lot going on. And the uh, last couple of weeks, we've been looking at Jacob, who we had Abraham, who was called by God, said, I'm going to bless you and make you into a great nation. And that through you, the entire world will be blessed. Then we had Isaac. And now we're looking at Jacob. The last couple of weeks, we've seen Jacob as a deceiver. He's done a lot of wrong things. He's deceived his older brother and his father. Uh, last week, he, he left after spending 20 years in the 500 miles away from where he grew up, where his ancestors lived. He had a wife. Well, he had, actually had two wives because Laban, his father-in-law, deceived him. He has 11 sons through his wives and their, uh, their two maidservants. There's a whole mess of a story. But at the end of last week, what we saw is that Jacob is now coming home. And he finally realizes who God is. That him and Laban, as they end their dispute together, Laban says that they need to swear by his gods and by the God of Jacob. But Jacob doesn't do that. He only swears by his 
God. He's finally realizing who God is and what he has done for him. And so we're going to pick up the story. He's traveling back home after being gone for 20 years because his older brother wanted to kill him and find a wife. He's going back home. Chapter 32, verse 1. Here's where the story picks up. It says, Jacob went on his way and God's angels met him. When he saw them, Jacob said, this is God's camp. So he called that place Mahaniam. Now, this, this is the second encounter with God's angels that Jacob has had. His first one was 20 years ago in Genesis 28 as he was traveling to the land of where, where Laban was, where he found his wives and where he was to live for 20 years, on the, really on the run for his life. And now he is in God's presence again, which will be relevant in just a second. Verse 3, Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir in the territory of Edom. He commanded them, you are to say to my Lord Esau, this is what your servant Jacob says. I have been staying with Laban and have been delayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male and female slaves. I have sent this message to inform my Lord in order to seek your favor. Now, again, remember, especially if you've been with us, going back home means for Jacob, he also has to face Esau, who originally wanted to kill him because he stole his birthright from him. So part of the reason Jacob left in the first place is because Esau said, once our dad Isaac dies, I'm going to kill Jacob. And so here on his way back, he has to face Esau. And so he's sending these messengers ahead of him to tell Esau that he is coming. His message here is very deferential and submissive. And there's really three main things he wants him to know. One, he wants him to know where he's been. He says, I've been staying with Laban. Here's where I've been the past 20 years. Uh, Two, he tells him, I have many possessions on my own, which is important for Esau to know that Jacob is not trying to come and take things from him. He already has enough. And three, I'm sending this message as your subordinate. In other words, I hope to find favor with you, not to rule over you. Now, again, there's a good chance that uh, Jacob also assumes that Isaac, their father, has died in the 20 years that he has been gone, and he does not want Esau to think that he's coming back to take the blessing and the birthright and the inheritance and his rightful place as the patriarch of the family away from Esau. Because again, Esau would have gotten all of it since Isaac, since Jacob left. Now we'll find out that Isaac is actually still alive at this point, but there's a good chance Jacob doesn't know that. And so he doesn't want Esau to think, I'm coming back to take what is mine. He's not doing that. Verse six, we continue. It says this, when the messengers returned to Jacob, so they talked to Esau, now they come back. They said, we went to your brother Esau. He is coming to meet you. And he has 400 men with him. Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people with him into two camps, along with the flocks, herds, and camels. He thought, if Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, the remaining ones can escape. In other words, that Esau is coming with such a large group makes Jacob likely assume that Esau is coming to kill him, or if not kill him, attack him and take everything from him. Again, especially because Jacob left because Esau originally wanted to kill him. Now, obviously, Esau has been very successful himself. That's what Jacob learns when his messengers come back. And so while Jacob has survived his encounter with Laban, which was his father-in-law last week who wanted to attack him, but God spared him and told Laban not to do so, while he has already faced these angels at the place that he's currently camping out at, and they haven't harmed him, he doesn't know what Esau is going to do. He doesn't know what Esau is going to do, so he's anxious, especially upon hearing that 400 people are coming with him to meet Jacob. So verse 9, Jacob then said, 
God of my favor, a fa- sorry, God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac. The Lord who said to me, this is what he's talking about in Jack, back in Genesis 28, go back to your land and to your family, and I will cause you to prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. Indeed, I crossed over the Jordan with my staff, and now I have become two camps. Please rescue me from my brother Esau, for I am afraid of him. Otherwise, he may come and attack me, the mothers and their children. You have said, I will cause you to prosper, and I will make your offspring like the sand of the sea, too numerous to be counted. Now, again, as we continue the storyline of Jacob, this is coming into a better understanding of who God is. This is the first recorded prayer we have of Jacob actually praying to God. Right? He's coming into a better relationship with who God is. And here, he is asking God, and not in like a, uh, you better prove it type of a way, when he did when he first spoke to God back in Genesis 28. But here, he's asking God to remain faithful to him and to remain faithful to his promises. Here, Jacob again realizes that he can no longer, as he's done in the past, uh, twist the situation for his own gain and get away with it. He recognizes that his survival is wholly dependent on what God's going to do, because he, there is no way he's going to stand up against his brother and these 400 men that are coming. Now, while Jacob is finally realizing who God is and how God has protected him up until this point, it doesn't take away from the fact of what's always gone on, which is that God has always been gracious and kind to Jacob, that God has always protected Jacob, even when he did not deserve it. And so as we read this story and we reflect maybe on your life and on my life, here's something that that we also need to realize like Jacob. And that is that God's grace is not dependent on you. God's grace is not dependent on you, whether you realize it or not. In fact, if you are a follower of Jesus here this morning, uh, there is a good chance that when you began to follow Jesus for the first time, when you really realized God's grace and his love and mercy for you, you probably realized, oh, God's grace has always been there for me. I just did not realize it until now. God has always been patient with me. I just did not realize it until now. God here in Jacob's story has actually revealed himself multiple times to Jacob. And also, by the way, not always supernaturally. In fact, when, when, when Laban and Jacob came into the agreement of how Jacob was going to get paid, and then Jacob had the speckled and spotted sheep, and he started getting tons and tons of animals, and he tried to, started to trade them and become more wealthy, right? He even realized, like, this was God's kindness on me. He is finally understanding what has always been true, that God's grace has been on him. It kind of reminds me of the story of a, a, a son, with his, he's hanging out with his grandfather, and he was just man, really impressed with his grandfather because his grandfather always spoke so kindly and sweetly to his grandmother, to the grandfather's wife. And so one day the grandson says, after 65 years of marriage, you still call grandma darling, beautiful, and hungry, honey. Like what's the secret? The grandpa responded by saying, well, son, I forgot her name five years ago, and I'm scared to ask her. <laughs> and, I, and I say that to say this, whether you see it or not, right, whether you and I forget it or not, God's grace and his love is always there, and it's waiting. It's waiting. As Jacob was finally realizing this was the fact for him. And so what happens next in the story, I'm just going to explain the next couple of verses. Uh, Jacob then spends the night, his messengers come back, he spends the night in the campsite where he's at, and then he devises a plan where he's going to send over 500 animals 
to Esau as kind of a peace offering and an ask for his forgiveness. Just so you know, for ancient readers' context, uh, this would have actually been a much larger number of animals than what you would tr traditionally figure as like a tribute. So if like, if, like, if like a tribe or a people was coming under subordination to another king, they would give them tribute as a way to help them protect and to care them and to not attack them. Uh, this is even much larger than that. And so he, he sends all these animals and he divides them up into three groups. And so his plan is to one by one have each of these groups come to Esau and the traveling party that are coming to greet, greet Jacob. And it's going to likely do two things here. One, he's hoping that with every gift of all these animals, Esau's stance toward him is going to be lessened and maybe more empathetic and caring and forgiving as he receives more and more gifts. And at the same time, giving him all these animals and people that are coming with it will also slow him down. If he was trying to make a surprise attack on Jacob, he's got way hundreds of more animals and lots more people with them. He can't move as fast. So maybe Jacob's thinking also, this will protect me if he's coming to attack me. So he sends all of this stuff. And in verse 20, he even says he does this in the hopes that Esau will forgive him for what he has done. And then he follows behind his family. And then it says this in verse 24, kind of a well-known well but a confusing little passage. It says this, verse 24, Jacob was left alone. So he, he has everything in alignment. I guess he's somehow in the back of the pack of everybody traveling to go meet Esau. And a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he could not defeat him, he struck Jacob's hip socket as they wrestled and dislocated his hip. 26, then he said to Jacob, let me go. For it is daybreak. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What is your name? The man asked, Jacob, he replied, 28, your name will no longer be Jacob, he said. It will be Israel because you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he answered, why do you ask my name? And he blessed him there. Jacob then named the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face. And he said, yet my life has been spared. The sun shone on him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. So um, what's happening here is Jacob is, for some reason, behind everybody. He's on his own, behind the traveling pack. And I guess is, is pretty normal when you see a stranger in the middle of nowhere, you wrestle. So that's what they, that's what they do for whatever reason. Yet this man, as we're going to find out, is either God or an angel of God. So the Hebrew here that has translated God could be either one. It could be God himself, or it could be a messenger from God. And again, in the ancient world, if you were a messenger, if you were sent from somebody, you still had that same person's authority. And so you would address the messenger as if you were addressing the main person. So whether it's God or a divine being that God sends, regardless, Jacob wrestles him. But for a while, it seems like the match is even, right? That this angel or God himself cannot overpower Jacob. In other words, as readers, what we're meant to understand here is that God is allowing this wrestling match to go on. He's allowing Jacob to continue to fight him on even strength before he finally subdues him, before he finally subdues him. And so as readers here, we're also supposed to sit and reflect that this is for us, this is more than just a physical encounter that Jacob has. Uh, this is also a reflection on Jacob's spiritual journey up until this point, that Jacob also is finally realizing that he cannot do this on his own, that as, as much as he's tried and deceived and gone his own way and, and tried to make life go for him the way that he wants it to go, he is finally understanding, no, 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 he needs God to help him and to bless him. So they fight, 
and eventually the, the, this divine being makes a finishing move. It's like God's up ahead in heaven, and it's like Mortal Kombat, like, finish him. And he, I don't even like Mortal Kombat. I don't even know why I said that. I don't even like that game going up. But anyway, it's like he, finish, he gives this finishing move, and he takes Jacob out. Now, dislocated here can be translated a couple of ways. It could be understood also as he ruptured or he tore something in Jacob's hip. It's hard for us to know the exact injury or the place. It's somewhere in his inner groin hip area. He gets injured somehow, some way. Yet what's even interesting here is as you read this wrestling match, even though Jacob is hurt and even though he is losing, he does not let this man go until this man will bless him. He clearly sees this man as an authority, as someone in power over him, and so he wants this man to bless him. And so this man, this divine being, God himself, changes his name to Israel, which means he strives with God, as this is who Israel, or Jacob, was wrestling with. Now, just a little side note, Bible trivia for you. This is where we get the Israelites. So Jacob is going to eventually have 12 sons, where you get the 12 tribes of Israel, which we'll read more over the next couple of weeks. But this is how we get Israel. Jacob changes his name to Israel, and then you have the Israelites. Again, up until now in the Jacob story, Jacob had prevailed by deception, but now he's going to prevail with God and God's blessing. That God has now changed his name and he's going to change his character as Jacob's spiritual understanding of who God is grows as well. God spares Jacob here and he blesses him and then he changes his name to Israel. So again, I just want to like recap where we are, have been with Jacob. Jacob up until this point is not a great guy. Like he hasn't done a lot of great things. In fact, he's done the exact opposite of someone you and I would consider who deserves to be blessed by God. He deceives, he lies, he looks out for himself. And yet here in this moment, God changes his name. He changes who he is. And he's essentially saying that his past has no bearing on God's blessings for him and his use of him in the future. And again, I just want to, as we're reflecting and reading this story, maybe thinking about our own lives, I also want to understand how what's happening to Jacob here is also in many ways what Christ offers to us. What we need to understand is this, that in Christ, you are not who you used to be, right? Just like Jacob is receiving the offer of God's grace and abundance and love and mercy in his life, God eventually sends someone who will bless the whole world through the family line of Abraham, and his name is Jesus, and through his death and burial and resurrection, through his perfect life, we also get to receive the grace and mercy of God. And so listen, if you are in Christ, it does not matter who you were, uh, what you did, what you said, what people have done or said to you. What matters is that he has redeems us and that he changes us, right? The good news of the gospel is that God invites us into his kingdom. Not that we figured it out on our own, not that we shaped up ourselves, not that we changed it, not that we white knuckled our way into God's grace, that God in heaven has always, through his son, granted us love and mercy. And he is inviting us to live with him. And so here's what we need to understand. Like if in Christ you are not who you used to be, then here's what this also means. That you do not have to do the things you used to do because in Christ you are not the person that you used to be. You do not have to do the things you used to do because in Christ you are not the person you used to be. Listen, it does not matter what you think or what you have been told. That God offers us grace and freedom and love. And so here's what I know, right? We often think, well, I can't change. Well, I can't be the person I aspire to be. Well, I'll never get past this trauma or this addiction that still affects me today. And so it is what it is. I just have to deal with it. Listen, 
I don't know about you, but, but if we're going to take God's word at its val face value, then God says, no, you can break free from what has held you back. Now, it does not mean it will be easy. It does not mean it will always be a struggle for you, but it does not have to rule and reign over you the way that it does today. You don't have to do the things you used to do because in Christ, you are not the person that you used to be. Just like Jake, God, God is granting Jacob a new way forward in Jesus, as again, the scripture is a unified story that leads to Jesus, we are offered this very same thing. In the midst of our doubts and struggles and sins, we don't have to stay where we are because God, through his spirit, is offering us another way. Which, by the way, it may be hard. It might be difficult. Again, for some of us, I think we need to join a group. If you need community, you should join a community group to help you take those steps to get there. But we do not have to do be the people we used to be because in Christ, he offers us a different way. That's exactly what he's doing to Jacob here. And so if we continue the story, chapter 33, verse 1, here's what happens next. Now, Jacob looked up. And saw Esau coming toward him with 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two slave women. He put the slaves and their children first, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph last. He himself went on ahead and bowed to the ground seven times until he approached his brother. So what Jacob does is he essentially breaks up the family in order of their social status to him. So the maidservants and their children are up, are up front. And then Leah, who was his unfavored wife, is in the third. And then Rachel, his favorite wife, had her own biological son, Joseph. So it's his favorite son. They're in the back. Now, the further you are back, it's better because if there is an attack, you have a better chance of escaping. So he lines them up. And then he goes to the front of the line and faces Esau first. And then it says this. Like he goes and you know, bows at his feet, putting his place in submission, verse 4. But Esau ran to meet him, hugged him, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Then they wept. When Esau looked up and saw the women and children, he asked, Who are these with you? He answered, The children God has graciously given your servant. Then the slaves and their children approached him, and that, that means Esau, and bowed down. Leah and her children also approached and bowed down. And then Joseph and Rachel approached and bowed down. So again, surprisingly to us, certainly as readers, Esau does not attack, does not fight, does not kill Jacob, but he embraces him in the warmest possible way, uh, warmest possible of terms. He hugs him. They embrace each other. He apparently has no animosity or ill intent towards Jacob. Even after all Jacob has done towards him, Esau welcomes Jacob and his entire family. And so verse 8, he's, he's confused about all these gifts that Jacob had sent him. So it says this, verse 8. So Esau said, what do you mean by this whole procession I met? To find favor with you, my Lord, he answered. I have enough, my brother, Esau replied. Keep what you have. But Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor with you, take this gift from me. For indeed, I have seen your face, and it is like seeing God's face since you have accepted me. Please take my present that was brought to you, because God has been gracious to me, and I have everything I need. So Jacob urged him until he accepted in other words, Esau wants to know why Jacob sent all of these gifts to him. And again, what's easy to miss here as we just read the story, but I think is quite significant, is that with Jacob's response when Esau said, why did you do this? After Jacob knows that Esau isn't going to kill him, what does he do? He tells him the truth. 
And the two previous stories we have of Jesaw, uh, Jesaw, Jacob and Esau, Jacob deceives and lies to Esau. This is the first time that Jacob tells Esau the truth. The truth is, I wanted to find favor with you. That's why he sent him these things to get on your good side. He does not try to deceive or explain away at all what is happening. Again, we're seeing Jacob and his character developed. But Esau tells him, I have more than enough. And so he declines until Jacob essentially wears him down. Now, again, just for us to know how ancient readers would have understood this, in the ancient world, if someone gave you, gave you a gift, uh, it was the expectation that you would give them a gift in return. Our culture is different today, but you still feel it. Like if somebody, especially if it's not your birthday or anything surprising or anything uh, significant, like they just, you have a friend that just surprises you with a gift out of nowhere. Like you feel this urge, like I had to do something to pay you back. And so the ancient world was no different. If someone gives you a gift, you would have to give something to them in return. The fact that Esau gives nothing to Jacob means that that they, this is viewed as kind of a reparation gift or a forgiveness offering that Jacob, or sorry, that Esau is accepting Jacob's gifts and that they are now on good terms. That because of what Jacob has given him, they are good. Everything is squared away. Verse 12, then, J then Esau said, let's move on and I'll go on ahead of you. Jacob replied, my Lord knows that our children are weak and I have nursing flocks and herds. If they are driven hard for one day, the whole herd will die. Let my Lord go ahead of his servant. I will continue on slowly at a pace suited for the livestock and the children until I come to my Lord at Seir. In other words, Jacob says he has to move at a slower place because of all the animals and younger animals and children he has in his traveling party. And he doesn't want to hold up his brother's travel plans to get back. Again, this is probably about a 550-ish journey from where Jacob began to where he was ending. And so this is, you know, months at a time, especially with so many people. He doesn't want to hold his brother back. And so he tells him, he insists that his brother go on ahead of him. Verse 15, Esau said, well, let me leave some of my people with you. But he replied, why do that? Please indulge me, my Lord. That day Esau started on his way back to Seir, but Jacob went to Succoth. He built a house for himself and shelters for his livestock. That is why the place was called Succoth. So Jacob also declines uh, Esau's offer of protection by leaving some of his men uh, with him. Again, in the ancient world, just to come up and straight out and say no would be viewed as disrespectful. And so you'd try to find other ways to say no without actually like coming out it's saying no. And so it becomes clear to Esau that Jacob does not want to take anything from him. He does not want his help. And so he leaves and he departs and he allows Jacob to follow behind at his own pace. Um, now we're not told why, but Jacob actually ends up going in another direction. He doesn't end up going to Seir. He goes to a place called Succoth. We're not told why. Perhaps he is afraid that Esau's favor with him is going to wear off. Um, perhaps that the land that, that, uh, Esau was going back to could not support all the animals and people that they have. So for whatever reason, he doesn't end up going to live next to his brother. He goes back to the promised land to the Canaanites, but he lives in a different area. And so he goes back as well. Verse 18, the end of the chapter then says this. After Jacob came from Padan Aram, so that's where Laban was, where he was living for 20 years, he arrived safely at Shechem in the land of Canaan and camped in front of the city. He purchased a section of the field where he had pitched his tent from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, for a hundred pieces of silver. And he set up an altar there and called it God, the God of Israel. So Jacob returns. He settles back in the land of Canaan that God has promised to his offspring, and he builds an altar to the Lord. 
Now, again, significant for us is that no longer is it just the God of Abraham and just the God of Isaac, but it is also his God too. It is also his God too. In other words, God was faithful to his promises to Jacob way back in Genesis chapter 28 when Jacob was on the run through his life to Padan Aram. Uh, God says, I'm going to do all these things for you. I'm going to make you, I'm going to, you know, you're going to have kids, you're going to be wealthy, all these great things. I'm going to protect you. And then Jacob's response was like, well, if you do that, then I'll make you my God. Right? It was a pretentious, not very good response. Here, we see God has made good on all of his promises, that he has been patient and kind with Jacob, even if Jacob was excruciatingly slow at realizing just how great his God is and just how much his God had protected him. And so I think, man, especially where we are now in the, jo- in the story of Jacob, as we see God's kindness and his patience, to me, it, it, it reminds me of what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 2, when he talks about the salvation and the grace and mercy of God. And he ends up saying this in, cha- in verse 4. It says, God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. That's what's happened with Jacob. That God could have forced his hand. God could have said, well, remember I said this and you should do this and you better do this or else. That never happens. He is kind and he is gracious and he is loving to Jacob, even at all the times he didn't deserve it. And again, for you and I, as we reflect in our own lives, right? Again, our question this morning is, what do we have to do for God to accept us, right? And we think that, that God's going to be heavy-handed when we, when we blow it. And if we don't perform the right way, then we don't get God's mercy. But yet in the Jacob story and in Romans, Paul tells us that it's God's kindness. It is his love. It is his grace that has meant you to draw near to him. And so if I could just end this morning in a real practical manner, what do you do have to do for God to accept you? I think here's what the Jacob story shows us. That acceptance from God... Uh, begins not with your work, but by recognizing and accepting his. Acceptance from God begins not from your work and your efforts and your promises to be better in the future, but by recognizing and accepting his grace and his promises and what he has done through Jesus. Again, up until now in the Jacob story, this is who Jacob is. He is undeservingly, he's undeserving of God's graciousness and kindness to him. Yet God, again, was undeservingly kind and gracious to Jacob. And now Jacob is finally realizing and responding with worship. This is the first time he's prayed, and this is the first time he's explicitly worshiped God in his entire life. And it is not after God said, I'm going to threaten you. It's not after God said, well, if you don't do X, Y, and Z. No, it's after God was unrelentingly kind and gracious to him. And so this morning, in a second, we're going to take communion together. And for some of us, man, maybe this week was awesome for you and you're killing it. But I think for many of us, maybe today, this week was a hard week for you. Maybe life has just been hard for you. And you feel like in order for God to love me and to care for me and to accept me, I have to do X, Y, and Z. I have to perform. And so what we're going to do in a moment here is we come to the table and take communion together. We're going to come to the table as people who don't deserve it, as people who have fallen short, recognizing that Jesus' finished work is what draws us in, that Jesus' finished work is what invites us into his kingdom. And so listen, I don't know what this, like, this week has been like for you or this month or this year has been like for you, but for all of us this morning, we are a broken people coming to the graciousness and the love of God, not because we're awesome and we deserved it, but because he looked at us in our brokenness, in our distress, and it was his kindness that leads us to worship.